0: To the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.blchurch.tv. Well, good morning. How are you doing? Good. You're alive? You're awake? Amen. I love a gathering with the people of God. It's one of my favorite things to do each and every week. Um, And another special uh, thing I like to do is announce a special guest. Is Danny in here? Where's Danny? Danny, would you like to introduce your special guest to us today? Is he with you? He's he's back in the back. Okay, why don't you stand and, and tell us who'd you bring with you today? Yeah, go get him real quick. Yeah. Okay. So, what's his name? Owen Lee Shaman, When was he born? <laughs> I told you I was gonna put you on the spot. What was his birthday? Oh, May twenty-first. There you go. There you go. I I understand. They they ruin your plans sometimes. How 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 heavy was he? How many pounds? How many ounces? Oh, come on. You just picked him up at the grocery store. Is that it? You're just like 15-pound turkey? Awesome. Well, we're so excited for you and Whitley. And uh, as soon as Grandma brings him in here, we can all awe and clap and celebrate. Yeah, there you go. This is practice, because if your wife asks you, you'll be in big trouble. June eighth, June 8th. that's good. All right, all right. Well, we uh, we want to say congratulations to the both of you, and uh, we're excited that uh, you brought little Owen into. There he is. Let's all look. Say ah, <laughs> ah. <"Aww."> congratulations. <laughs> all right. Awesome. You may be seated. Thank you for for that. We appreciate you, and we just celebrate our kids. Our kids are not just our future. They're our future leaders, and uh, we just love to see how God is blessing our church with young families and children, and um, I think our youth ministry is, if not one of, but probably the most important ministry we have here at VLC, so we just celebrate that. Uh, We are rounding off the end of our series that we've been going through, the Great Romance today. Um, We have been looking at the Feast of Israel, the seven Feasts of Israel, and this, what we're talking about today, is going to be the culmination of everything that we've been studying over the last year in the Scriptures, highlighting not only Uh, Jesus in the scripture who this God is but the great love story that the Bible tells us from cover to cover as God has been pursuing our hearts the greatest fairy tale stories ever written if you think of the stories you've read as children you think of all the Disney movies that you've watched the greatest fairy fairy tale stories ever written usually include a princess in distress a knight in shining armor with his valiant steed, some kind of monster like a dragon, and a tower where the princess gets locked away, right? You have these elements to the story. And and the dragon guards the princess, and anyone who would want to come rescue her, he he lays waste to them, uh, destroying anyone who might want to come and save the princess. But lo and behold, one brave soul, the knight, you know, uh, the knight in shining armor, this image that we have when we think of fairy tale stories, the knight in shining armor, the prince uh, will come to rescue the fair princess. And if you think, you have to ask yourself this question why would the prince want to come and rescue the princess? Is it for fame? No, because he's a prince, right? He's already famous. He, he already has a million followers on Facebook or Snapchat or, wh- or whatever's the, the thing today. Right? He's already got all the followers that he needs. Is it fortune? No. He's already rich. He's wealthy. He's got everything he could ever possibly want as a prince. Why would he go risk his life to slay the dragon and rescue the princess? Well, beloved, he would do it for love. Because the promise is made, whoever rescues the princess from the dragon gets to hold her hand in marriage. And so he risks life and limb for a chance to live happily ever after. This is the biblical tale that beginning in Genesis, the opening pages, you have a father who has children and he loses his children to the toil, to the deception of a great dragon who uses his power to place his daughter into a tower, into a stronghold, into a prison called sin and death. Yahweh being the father, the daughter being the people of the world. Has now found itself in this predicament as is now the, the people have been lost to the father. And now this prison is set up that the princess can't get out. And so what does the father do? But he raises up a prince. We call King Jesus. The son of God. And the Jesus goes to fight the dragon. So that we can be united with him and live happily ever after. Love is what motivated the heart of the father to rescue his daughter and to send his son, the prince to go and fight for the bride. Love is ultimately what conquered sin and death in the grave, overturned evil, and paved the way to eternal life. It says in the scriptures that love covered a multitude of sins. And as we started looking at the Feast of Atonement, we saw how Jesus offered his own blood at the end of time to cover all the sin for all time so that we could be redeemed and never have a fear of being disconnected from our God, our Heavenly Father, ever again. This Feast of Atonement is so significant, not just because of what Christ accomplished, but what it means for you and I as the princess, as the bride of our great God. The Son was filled with love for His bride, which is why He came at the command of His Father to come and rescue us. The Son is so rapturously in love with His bride, and this, this passion, this love that the Son has for His Bride is found in Song of Solomon, chapter 4. This, the, the book Song of Solomon is about a husband and his love affair with his wife and how they are doting over each other and some of the conflicts that they have, but ultimately how love wins out and, and flourishes in this family. And it can be used as an illustration of the love Christ has for his bride the church in song of solomon chapter 4 beginning in verse 9 this is the the husband speaking to the wife and he says you have captivated my heart my sister and my bride you've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes with one jewel of your necklace how beautiful is your love my sister my bride how much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils Than any spice. Heavenly Father God. We just ask you now. In Jesus name. God to remove all distractions. All heaviness. All burden. And God may the love of Christ. Be highlighted this morning. May it fill our lives. So fill our hearts God. That it becomes tangible. Right now in Jesus name. God I pray that. That the story that we're about to read, the conclusion, the climax, God, and what it means for us as your people, as your church. God, I pray that we would have such new, fresh revelation that we would not be able to sit still in our seats, but we'd cry out in worship. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. God, unseat every every dark thought every discouraging emotion got every distraction and influence on the enemy god and may we be captivated by the love of our father today in jesus name and all god's people said amen the son the the groom is passionate for his bride the prince has deep passion for the bride he had singular focus To do all the father commanded. And what did the father command him to do? Go and get your wife. Go and rescue the bride. We see this in John 10, 18, where Jesus said, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to, and also to take it up again, for this is what my father commanded. God gave the command, son, I want you to go rescue the bride. And this is how you're going to do it. You're going to sacrifice yourself for her. You're going to lay your life down. But it's not going to stop there. You're going to take it up again. And in victory, you're going to cling to your bride. What was it the father commanded? It was his will that Jesus should lay his life down. Not so simply that we could have salvation or that could be possible, but it includes a mystery that is uh, we find in scripture from cover to cover, this language that involves marriage. And we're gonna read a lot of scripture today because I want you to see from cover to cover how this theme of marriage and the son and the bride, it, Finds its way through all of scripture and how it applies to not just where we are today But what's coming on the future stage when we rise with Christ in ultimate victory The father commanded his son go go rescue the bride and Paul reveals this mystery in Ephesians chapter 5 beginning in verse 25 through 32. This is often quoted at at, um, marriages at wedding ceremonies when we talk about marriage this is this is quoted but here's what he says he says husbands this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church and he gave up his life for her he gave up his life for the bride for her why to make her holy and clean washed by the cleansing of god's word he did it to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish instead she'll be holy and without fault in the same way husbands you ought to love your wives as they love their own bodies for a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself no one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as christ cares for the church and we are members of his body As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And this is a great mystery. But it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. In the book of Genesis... The very first marriage, when God makes Adam and makes Eve, and he brings them together, and it says man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, it is not just the first marriage that's taking place where we now have the first parents of all mankind. It is an illustration of God's eternal plan to unite the son with the bride. That they would become one. It's a love story. There is much imagery in the scriptures regarding marriage because marriage is a prophetic revelation of the story of God's ultimate redemption. This is why Jesus says, what God has put together, let no one separate. Because God doesn't give up his bride. Jesus will not divorce his bride. Jesus is going to lay his life down for his bride they're gonna become one John the Baptist the prophet the forerunner of Jesus was asked many times who who are you really what's your identity because many at his during the time of of Christ thought that maybe John was a reincarnated prophet or or that that he was a fulfillment of some type of messianic prophecy maybe even the Messiah and John in response to this question he tells these disciples in John 3 says you know yourselves how I plainly told you I'm not the Messiah I'm not the one who's to come I'm only here to prepare the way for him and then look what he says in verse 29 he says it is the bridegroom who marries the bride and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows therefore I'm filled with joy at his success he must become greater and greater and I must become less and less John the Baptist was the best man. Jesus is the groom. So John's saying, I'm not the one who gets to marry the bride. It's the one coming after me. And so I need to decrease so he can increase. I'm going to glorify him. The Messiah is the bridegroom coming to marry his bride. This is why, men, we sacrificially love our wives. It's because this is the way Jesus demonstrated his love for his bride he gave up his life for her and why did he do it to present her glorious without spot without blemish a holy bride without any fault and this is why the atonement was instituted to purify the people of god to purify the bride to eradicate and eliminate the record of wrongs against us so we could stand before a righteous and holy god pure and clean. That we'd be a bride worthy to have God as a husband. Think about that. All the study in the Old Testament and how sacrifice after sacrifice had to be done to cover sin, to bring purity so that God could dwell with his people And once and for all time, Jesus offered his own life so that we could be with him forever and ever. We'd be completely secure in his love. That we'd become one with him. One spirit. Just as a husband and wife are one flesh, we become one spirit with the Lord through the nature of the Holy Spirit. God's spirit, Christ's spirit, comes to live with inside of us. This was his singular focus. This is why Jesus came and the reason why this is so important is because this is not the first time. If you look at Jesus giving his life for the church, the, the bride of Christ, this isn't the first time God went to the altar. The story of the great romance also comes with tragedy because God had another spouse. He went to the altar before, and this story, this love story, did not come with a happy ending like the way the church is is depicted in scripture there's another marriage that God was involved with but it didn't turn out the way we see prophesied in scripture the bride that he married the one he loved the one he cared for ultimately turned against him and betrayed him in Ezekiel chapter 16 verses 4 through 15 this is a description of the first bride of God It says on the day you were born no one cared about you Your umbilical cord was not cut. You were never washed. You were rubbed with salt or wrapped in a cloth. No one had the slightest interest in you. No one pitied you or cared for you. On the day you were born, you were unwanted, dumped in a field, and left to die. But I came by and saw you there helplessly kicking about in your own blood. And as you lay there, I said, Live! And I helped you to thrive like a plant in a field. You grew up and became a beautiful jewel. Your breast became full and your body hair grew and you were still naked. And then I passed by again and I saw you were old enough for love. And so I wrapped my cloak around you to cover your nakedness and declared my marriage vows. I made a covenant with you, says the sovereign Lord. You became mine." Then I bathed you and washed off your blood. I rubbed fragrant oils into your skin. I gave you expensive clothing, a fine linen and silk, beautifully embroidered, and sandals made from the fine goat skin leather. I gave you lovely jewelry, bracelets, and beautiful necklaces, a ring for your nose, earrings for your ears, a lovely crown for your head. And you were so adorned with gold and silver, your clothes were made of fine linen, costly fabric, and were beautifully embroidered. You ate the finest foods, choice flour, honey, olive oil. You became more beautiful than ever. You looked like a queen, and so you were. Your fame soon spread through the whole world because of your beauty. I dressed you in my splendor and perfected your beauty, says the sovereign Lord. But you thought your fame and beauty were your own, so you gave yourself as a prostitute to every man who came along. Your beauty was theirs for the asking. Here we have this bride that God nourished from birth. He adorned her. He loved her. He came alongside of her. He lifted her up, gave her his glory, and yet she turned away. This original bride was supposed to be the covenant people of God. This was supposed to be the nation of Israel. You think of their story. The the nations had just been scattered, handed over to the fallen realm at the Tower of Babel, but yet God looks at a man named Abram and calls him out. He was a part of a people who wasn't of people. He calls them out and through miraculous intervention he brings a son to Abraham and Sarai. These, These old, this man and woman that were too old to have kids now miraculously have a child. The promise was given to Isaac. Isaac has children. The promise goes on to Jacob. And each generation, God supernaturally intervenes, even to the point where they're in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God parts the Red Sea, brings them out of Egypt, out of slavery to Sinai, where he comes down in glorious fashion, and he gives them the marriage vows in the form of the law of God. He creates a home the temple or the tabernacle, the, his throne is in this place, the Ark of the Covenant. God lifts them up from being a, a nothing, nobody people, insignificant, no one would recognize or even or pay attention to, to a great nation that all people for a time came to see God and worship in their midst. This is their story. But what happened, you continue to read through the judges, through 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, into Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, all these. Books that have been given to us through the Old Testament. You continue to read through the prophets, and you see something begin to happen. They got comfortable. They got prideful. They thought they were glorious in and of themselves. They began to reject God. They asked for a king. They said, God, we don't want you as a king anymore. We want to be like other nations. We want to have a man in command. We want to have other gods. They they have gods that seem pretty cool. We want to have other gods. And over time what ends up happening is you have the glorious temple where the presence of God is and they erect idols to sit in the temple with God. The original bride was supposed to be the covenant people. But they prostituted themselves. They committed adultery. They turned away from the Lord. And as a result of Israel's continual rejection of the bridegroom, Jeremiah 3, 7 through 9, God through the prophet says, I thought after she had done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her faithless sister Judah saw this. Israel was one nation at one point, but after Solomon died, it split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. So this is what he's referring to now. We have Israel and Judah, and now Both of them began to turn away. She saw that I divorced faithless Israel, the northern kingdom, because of her adultery, her her wickedness, her idolatry. But that treacherous sister Judah, the southern kingdom, had no fear. And now she too has left me, given herself to prostitution. Israel treated it all so lightly. She had nothing, thought of nothing, and committing adultery by worshiping idols made of wood and stone. So now the land has been polluted. What was once sacred space, the place where God's glory dwelt, this this home, this reinstitution of Eden that God had created on the earth has now been corrupted. The place where God's people were to dwell with their God, the bride with the bridegroom for all eternity has been desecrated and polluted. The bed of the Lord been given over to other lovers, driving the Lord from his home. You read in the book of Ezekiel how he has a vision of the glory of the Lord departing the temple. And the glory never returns until the day Jesus appears in the temple in the New Testament. Even the Ark of the Covenant has been missing for over 2,000 years from that point. When the Assyrians and the Babylonians came in and destroyed the city, the very presence of God had not been found again in the temple of the Lord. The glory leaves the temple and they're conquered by their enemies sent into exile. But before they're destroyed and sent into other nations, God makes a promise to them. In Ezekiel chapter 16, 53 through 63, he says, Someday I'll restore the fortunes of Sodom and Samaria, and I will restore you too. Then you will be truly ashamed of everything you've done, for your sins make them feel good in comparison. Yes, your sister Sodom and Samaria... And all their people will be restored at that time. You'll also be restored. In your proud days, you held Sodom in contempt. But now your greater wickedness has been exposed to all the world, and you are the one who's scorned by Edom and all their neighbors and by Philistia. This is your punishment for all your lewdness and detestable sin, says the Lord. Now, this is what the sovereign Lord says I will give you what you deserve. You've taken your solemn vows lightly by breaking your covenant, yet I will remember the covenant I made with you when you were young, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. You forsook the first covenant, but one day when I restore you, I'm going to reestablish a covenant, and not just any kind of covenant, but an everlasting covenant. Then you'll remember with shame all the evil you've done. I will make your sisters Samaria and Sodom to be your daughters, even though they were not part of our original covenant. I will reaffirm my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. You will remember your sins and cover your mouth in silent shame when I forgive you of all that you've done. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. Ezekiel's prophecy was that God was going to reestablish the covenant with Israel, but it would be an eternal and everlasting covenant. But it would not be for Israel only. It would also be for Sodom and Samaria. Why are those two places significant? One, Sodom was a place of debauchery and wickedness that, that we can read about in Genesis, how God destroyed the nation and, and leveled it with, with fire and burning sulfur because of the wickedness of the city. He sent angels to rescue Lot out of the city, and then he destroyed it because of their wickedness. And here he's saying, I'm going to restore Sodom. They were a Gentile nation under the power of other gods who were wicked and evil that Israel detested. Even in the time of Christ, they would compare people who they considered wicked to Sodom because it was like the standard of evil and wickedness. And then Samaria was a nation that was born out of an interbreeding between Jews and Gentiles that was against the law of God. So it was an unholy mixture uh, of these people, and they were at war with the Jews. They, they, they couldn't stand them because of their, the, their unholy mixture in their genetics, and the blending, but then also there was a religious war going between the two nations. So they couldn't stand them either. And so what, God, what is God saying He's saying that when I restore you, when I make atonement, it's not going to be just for you. It's going to be for everyone else too. All the Gentiles you detest and all the, the mixtures that you, you don't want a part of you, they're going to all be included in this eternal covenant. So when atonement was made for sin, this new covenant will be instituted. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three. He says, this is the new covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is not going to be a covenant written on stone tablets held in a golden box. This is going to be a covenant written on the very hearts of all who believe. And all who call on the name of the Lord will get to be a part of the covenant blessing that God has prepared for Israel. They will be his people and he will be their God. They will be his bride and he will be their groom. So when was the atonement made? It was made when the new covenant was instituted. The night before Jesus was crucified, we read in 1 Corinthians 11.25, Jesus took the cup of wine and after supper he said this is the cup which is the new covenant between god and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it every time we come to the communion table we drink the bread or drink the juice and eat the bread we are remembering the lord's sacrifice but we're also observing the new covenant that's been instituted for all people. The cup filled with the wine is the cup of the Lord represents the suffering of Christ, his pouring out of his blood that would institute the new covenant that we all get to be a part of. And then he sent out the disciples into all the world to preach the gospel as an invitation to anyone who would call on the name of Jesus to come and become part of the bride, come and be washed, be made new, be made clean, become one with the Lord. As his eternal bride. And this is what Jesus had in view as he is enduring his sacrifice. This was his motivation as he was going to the cross. Even in the garden where he's saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. The reason why he could still submit to the Father and endure the suffering that he went through. We're told in Hebrews 12 2. He says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Here's why Jesus could submit to God and continue with the sacrifice. He says, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. What was the joy that was awaiting Jesus on the other side of the sacrifice? What was the joy awaiting him? It was you. And it was me. It was anyone who would come to him, call on the name of the Lord. It was the day he would conquer the dragon and set the princess free. Where he would be wed to her for all eternity. For happily ever after. And not just for us, but for him. I will finally have a bride that I can love who won't reject me because my covenant will be on their hearts and they'll be glorious as I am glorious so picture this moment we're at the point in the timeline of future events We've gotten through all the previous feasts. The the tribulation is underway. God's pouring out his judgment. The atonement is being processed and then we get to the pinnacle moment the princess is locked in the tower the dragon is at the door the prince comes riding in on his valiant steed to save the day and this is coming one day in the future we're told in revelation 19:11 through 16 when jesus returns he's not coming as the servant who is going to suffer he's coming as prince charming on the white horse with the sword drawn Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war." His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. His title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on their white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with an iron rod, and he'll release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, like juice flowing from a winepress. And on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the moment. Prince Charming is coming for his bride. Jesus said, When you see all these things, look up, for your salvation is near. This is our blessed hope. This is the day we long for. Why we gather to encourage each other every day because there is a day, beloved, where we won't have to struggle anymore when Jesus comes on the clouds of power and glory. When the dragon is defeated, The armies of hell are destroyed once and for all. This is the power that influences the world right now that is leading corruption and dysfunction all over the world. It's represented as the city of Babylon in the book of Revelation because it all points back to Babel when God turned the nations over to the principalities and rulers of the fallen realm. So in Revelation 18, when we get to this passage, we see Babylon has fallen, it's been destroyed. It represents the destruction of not just the city of Babylon, but the spiritual power behind Babylon. Revelation 18, 1 and 2, he says, After all this, I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority. The earth grew bright with his splendor, and he gave a mighty shout, Babylon has fallen, the great city has fallen. She's become a home for what? A home for... Demons, she's a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture and every foul and dreadful animal. Babylon is, is the representation, the metaphor for the spiritual powers of darkness. And at this moment where Jesus is coming down, he's coming down because the powers of darkness have been destroyed once and for all. The dragon has a sword in his chest. In one fell swoop, the kingdom of darkness is destroyed and the kingdom of our lord and of his christ begins to reign in all the earth this is the moment the bride is saved when all the believers are gathered from the four corners of the earth meet jesus in the air and we come down as a beautiful bride adorned for her husband to dwell with the lord but when jesus comes to the earth he sets foot on the mount of olives and he enters this city. He's not coming just to have happily ever after. There are a few things that have to happen before the happily ever after. There's a division between who belongs to the Lord and who doesn't belong to the Lord. A division Jesus illustrates with a parable about a marriage in Matthew 25. This is coming in the last days, this separation of the sheep and the goats, those who follow Christ and those who are just pretending. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed and they all became drowsy and fell asleep and at midnight they roused by the shout and look the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him and all the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied we don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. Somebody say marriage feast. They went into the marriage feast, and then the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, Believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return." What Jesus is illustrating for us is that when the bridegroom comes, those that have light in their lamps, which represents the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, those who have a relationship with God, those who belong to the Lord, those are the ones that get to enter into the chamber to be participants of the marriage feast. It's a, this is important to understand because in ancient times, when there was a marriage contract, there was a process that they had to go through. First, they would... Enter into a marriage contract there'd be an exchange of gifts with the fathers And the groom and the bride would make vows and they'd be considered legally married But they wouldn't move in together right away The the groom would go off for a period of time about a year to prepare a house or a place for his bride And when it was ready, he would come and collect his bride. This is why jesus in john 14 Says this don't let your hearts be troubled Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything's ready, I'll come and get you so that you'll always be with me where I am. Did you know Jesus is preparing a home for you right now? I always wondered what's going to be in my, my room. You know how tastes change over time? Like I used to really like Ninja Turtles when I was a kid and my mom painted these life-size Ninja Turtles on my wall. I really hope he didn't pull from that part of my life. I'm not really, you know, digging Ninja Turtles nowadays. But if you think about that Jesus, the one who knows you more intimately than you know yourself, is preparing your room right now. And when that room is ready, he's going to come. When the groom came for the bride in ancient Israel, they would... Invite guests to come and celebrate. It was a great procession There was the sounding of trumpets and a great procession and they would come and they would have a week-long up usually around a week-long party to celebrate this new union that was about to be consummated Right prior to the party, again at least a year before the, this period, the Jews called the Arusan period. The groom's preparing his place for his bride. While he's preparing the place for his bride, the bride is focused on her personal preparations, wedding garments, lamps, etc. And we see this symbology all through the Book of Revelation. So, although the bride knew to expect her husband in about a year, she didn't know the exact day or hour. He could come earlier. He could come later. It was the father who gave the groom final approval for his son to return and collect his bride. Which is the reason the bride kept her oil lamps ready at all times, which is why Jesus says, you don't know when I'm coming. Make sure you are filled with light. You are ready, filled with the spirit, just in case if the groom comes at night, sounding the trumpet, and leading the bridal procession, that we're ready to participate. When the groom came for his bride, the party would commence. At this party, final vows would be taken in front of all the people. And then the great feast would ensue. The couple would enter what they called the chupa, or the, I can't really speak Hebrew, so I can't pronounce it properly, but it looks like chupa, so that's what we're running with today. But it was a temporary dwelling. It almost looked like an an archway that we would use for uh, a marriage ceremony but it was also representative of the same temporary dwellings they lived in in the wilderness when they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. So it was a temporary dwelling. The husband and and bride-to-be would enact their final vows and then the celebration would ensue. The wedding feast would ensue. So in this story, as we're seeing... Jesus in the sky, the trumpets sounding, he's come to collect his bride. Those who had their oil lamps trimmed and ready, filled with light, are now gathering with the Lord. They're not gathering to go into a secret hiding place, which many commonly think, to avoid the stuff on the earth. They're going to the specific place Jesus told us in this parable. They're going to the wedding feast. And we're told what happens in the wedding feast in Revelation 19:1 through 9. It says, After this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He's punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He's avenged the murder of his servants. And again, the voices rang out, Praise the Lord. Smoke from the city, Babylon, ascends forever and ever. And then the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshiped God who was sitting on the throne. And they cried out, Amen, praise the Lord. From the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants and all who fear him from the least to the greatest. Then I heard again what sounded like a shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves, the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him, for the time has come, for what? For the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. The fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then he said, these are true words that come from God. What we're doing right now as the bride is we're preparing our lamps. We're getting our righteous deeds in order that are represented in the white and pure gowns that we're doing so that when the party comes, we have the right clothes. When the party comes, we're ready for it. At this moment, the Son of God and all the believers in Christ have made it to the wedding day on this great day of victory over the enemy. It's not just a day to celebrate God's victory over the enemy, but it's also the marriage day. What a better way to end the day than with the prince marrying the princess. The Son of God united with this church and the church glorified in sinless perfection. As Jesus is uniting with his bride, those in opposition to God are being simultaneously judged and destroyed. Luke 17:34 through 37 is often a verse quoted that points to uh, the event many call the rapture. But here's what it says. He says, I tell you, that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And then they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So many people, they believe that the church is taken out before the tribulation happens, before Christ returns, and they use this verse to kind of speak to that point. But here, after Jesus says this illustration, the disciples say, where are those that are taken? Where were they taken? Where do they go? And he says, where the corpse is, that's where the vultures are going to gather. That doesn't sound like heaven to me. That doesn't sound like a good place. Well, this is connected to Revelation 19, in regards to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here's what happens at this division as God is pouring out judgment all the while exalting his people. In Revelation 19, verse 17, he says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come and gather for what? For the great supper of God. ...to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done great signs and deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image." These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds, what, gorged with their flesh. The marriage supper of the lamb is not a literal buffet in heaven where we eat the fine delicacies of the Lord. The marriage supper of the Lamb is where we watch in celebratory victory as Jesus destroys his enemies and God allows the birds of prey to gorge themselves on the flesh of those that perished. This is a final judgment to those that are in opposition to the Lord. Jesus in triumphant perception after this judgment is laid waste, after the birds feast, he then proceeds to enter into the city with his bride and the wedding guests through the remnant of Israel, those that didn't die in the plagues, and literally begins to bring heaven to earth as he sets up his eternal throne and reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And during that time, Satan, the dragon, and the demonic realm are bound and defeated. And there is no demonic influence on the earth during that period of time. We then, with the lamb, enter the chupa for the final time to complete the marriage vows and consummate the marriage. And Jesus alludes to this in Matthew 26. In the Lord's Supper, he says, This is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for for the forgiveness of many sins. Mark my words, he says. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We observe this covenant as a sign as the future vows we're going to take. When Jesus is on the throne, we as the bride are going to drink the, at the Lord's table. We're going to drink the wine with him anew. What does that do? That seals the vow for all eternity. Brings us together once and for all with no possibility of separation. And after the giving of vows and the consummation of the marriage, with all the judgment, all the atonement being laid out during this period of time, after the destruction on the earth, there will be some survivors from the nations. There will be some survivors from the nation of Israel and from the nations at large that were in opposition to the Lord. And in Zechariah 14:16 through 21, we see the transition from atonement to the last and final feast of Israel, the Feast of Shelters. In chapter 14, verse 16, he says, In the end, the enemies of Jerusalem who survived the plague will go up to Jerusalem each year to worship the king, the Lord of heaven's armies, and to celebrate the festival of shelters. This represented the time they wandered in the desert for 40 years. They lived in temporary dwellings, and after they entered the promised land, God instructed them to continue to do this year after year to remember the time of testing that they went through in the desert." Verse 17 says, any nation in the world that refuses to come to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of heaven's armies, will have no reign. If the people of Egypt refuse to attend the festival, the Lord will punish them with the same plague that he sent on the other nations who refused to go. Egypt and the other nations will all be punished if they don't go to celebrate the festival of shelters. On that day, even the harness bells of the horses will be inscribed with these words, Holy to the Lord. The cooking pots in the temple of the Lord will all be sacred as the basins used besides the altar. In fact, even every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the lords of heaven's armies. All who come to worship will be free to use any of these pots to boil their sacrifices. And on that day, there will be no longer be traitors in the temple of the Lord of heaven's armies. This is the thousand year period of time. As Jesus is reigning on the earth, there is only one feast They are commanded to observe and that's the feast of shelters not passover not unleavened bread not first fruits not trumpets not even atonement it's the festival of shelters during this time there is a reinstitution of part of the the old covenant it seems where they're offering sacrifices in honor of this feast Again, this feast commemorated the time where they wandered in the desert for 40 years. What did God do with the people of Israel while they were in the desert? He tested their faith. And it was the faithless that didn't survive the wilderness. They died before the promised land. So during this thousand-year reign of Christ, the people that are alive on the earth, that are not the bride, we're with Christ, we're eternal, we're reigning with him, those that are still living will be tested in this way. Their faith and loyalty to God will be tested to see if their faith is genuine or if they're simply just being religious. This is what I have to do, so I'm going to do it. The faithful will be blessed, but the unfaithful will be cursed, just as it was in The wilderness wandering, every time they turned their back on God or complained about water or wanted meat or or did something that was out of step with their covenant relationship, they suffered the consequences in the wilderness. And this will be what it's like during the 1,000-year reign of Christ. They continue to observe the Feast of Shelters because this feast is the only one that will not be fulfilled until the final judgment. Until the final judgment we read in Revelation chapter 20, 21 and 22. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1, he says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, the old serpent, who's the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, and then he shut and locked Satan so he could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. And afterward, he must be released for a little while. So they're tested for that thousand years, and at the end of that thousand years, the enemies loosed again to test them to see who is legitimate and who is not. When the thousand years came to an end, Satan is let out of the prison. He goes out and deceive the nations called Gog and Magog. In every corner of the earth, he'll gather them together for battle, a mighty army as numberless as the sand along the seashore. Just think about this for a minute. You've lived on the earth a thousand years. It says in the Old Testament that during this period of time, if you die at age 900, they'll think you're dying young. Like what God is accomplishing and doing here, he's doing through Jesus who's on the throne. And here when Satan's loosed again, he's still able to deceive those who dwell on the earth. That blows my mind. But he gathers a mighty army as numberless as the sand along the seashore. And then I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city. Fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Can I get an amen on that one? Joining the beast and the false prophet. There they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence. Think about this. God's on his throne. And all creation is terrified. This is our awesome God. They found no place to hide. Why? Because there's nowhere you can get away from his presence. Nothing can escape his gaze. Verse 12, I saw the dead, both small and great, standing before God's throne. The books were open, including the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death in the grave. G- grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name is not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. As I think about what Christ did on the cross, and I think about that moment as he's hanging there and he's crying out, it is finished. I know he's referring to the mission that he had when he came here the first time, but part of me believes that he was also looking at the end of time to this moment when once and for all, death hell and the demonic will cease to exist. It will have no impact or relevance to the earth again, that it will finally be finished once and for all. The eternal prison will be holding its captives for all eternity. And with the greatest of victories, God gives the heavens and the earth a cosmic makeover as every curse is lifted. Think about this. The world is remade and it goes back to the way he intended it in Genesis chapter one when he created all things and he says, it is good. It's a return to Eden. It's a return to God's original intention. He returns it to the way he envisioned it before the fall where sin entered into the world, before the angels rebelled in Genesis 6, before we turned our backs on him in Genesis 11 at Babel, and we fell under the oppression of the demonic realm. The whole world becomes Eden. And in John's vision, the book of Revelation, at the end, it finalizes itself it finds its fulfillment with the fulfillment of the feast of shelters when God finally dwells with his people for all time Revelation 21 verse 1 it says then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone and I saw the holy city a new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband Verse 22, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need for sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of day, because there is no light there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Revelation 22 says, And the angel showed me a river with the water of life clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. The scripture tells us no one has seen God's face and lived. No one can see the face of God. He is too holy, too mighty, too awesome for his creation to gaze upon his face. This is why when Moses says, God, if you're going to give me a request, let me see your glory. Show me your glory, and God says, I'll show you my glory, but if I show you the whole thing, you're going to die. So I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by, and you can look at my backside. He let him see him from behind, because that's all he could handle. But in glory, as the eternal bride, the people of God, we get to gaze upon the face of the Lord for all eternity. His fullness, his presence, his glory, his goodness, his love, his joy, his peace, his power, his everything will be ours to the full and to the overflow for all eternity. There will be nothing he has that we will not have access to. We will know him as we are known. His name will be written on our foreheads and there will be no night there. Why? Because the lamb is our light. There's no need for the sun for God is our light. And his light will shine on us and we will reign forever and ever with him Then the angel said to me, Everything you've heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord God, who inspires his prophets, has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. Jesus says, Look, beloved, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. Well, Jesus, it's been 2,000 years. Right, but 2,000 years on the timeline of eternity is nothing. Soon is relative. I am coming. And I am coming soon. Blessed are those who listen and obey to the words of this prophecy. You are blessed if you hear what the Spirit is speaking. If you have eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind that understands and a heart ready to believe. See, after the atonement is finished, we move into shelters where the ultimate fulfillment is found in the holy city coming down from heaven where we get to move into our new room in the house of the Father. Where we get to live with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit forever and forever and forever. You know, beloved, what a privilege That though now no one shall see God's face and live. Because of his holiness and our unrighteousness. It is then when we dwell in the shelter of the most high God. We will see his face. Right now we see through a glass darkly. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13. But then we'll see clearly. Now we get a glimpse of glory. Then we'll have the fullness of glory. You see, the father sent the son to rescue his bride. And in that day that is our blessed hope for all eternity, the father will be watching over the prince and his princess for all eternity and will guarantee that they live happily ever after. There is no sorrow no crying, no pain, no tears, no shame, no regret, no relational dysfunction, no sickness, no death, no separation, no abandonment, none of the ills and curses on this earth, no poverty, No war, no fighting, no drama on Facebook and social media, no political correctness and no political craziness. There's one king whose name is Jesus, one Lord, one kingdom, one way, one truth, one life. No wonder he wipes the tears from our eyes. Because we won't be able to contain his goodness. You ever just get struck in your heart when you wake up to the realization of how good God is? You know, we talk about it all the time. We talk about, you know, Jesus dying on the cross and we, have, we tell the same story every Easter and we tell the same story every Christmas. But you know, every once in a while, that story just hits you in a new way and it just breaks you. This is what my heart is for us as we look at what is coming down the road, this story of the great romance, that this truth would break us afresh. We'd fall in love with Jesus all over again, and we'd wake up to a revelation of his goodness, and his goodness would wash over us, and that though we only have a glimpse now, that would be enough to light us on fire to pursue his heart for all eternity because, beloved, when we stand before him face to face, you better believe all we're going to do is worship. What else is there to do in the presence of a holy God? Who's that good? Who's that great? Who's that powerful? What a privilege it is to get to even speak of Him. What an honor it is to get to worship Him. To come before Him. To be known by Him. To make Him known. And I believe it brings God great joy. It brings Jesus great joy when we share Him with other people. And what great joy we get to experience when we know more people are going to get to experience His unfailing love like us for all eternity. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes for just a moment. As we hold on to this story in our hearts. God, I pray that you'd you'd break down the walls, that it would just saturate us afresh today. Today, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you've not begun a relationship with Him, if you've never had a time in your life where you truly gave Him your heart, You don't know Him personally. Today, He's inviting you to the marriage feast, not to succumb to judgment, but be risen up in glory. Today, He wants you to be a part of the bridal party. He wants to dote you. He wants to wash you clean. He wants to put jewels on your fingers and and, and rings in your ears. He wants to uh, cover you and cleanse you and make you new and clean because He loves you so passionately. He gave His life for you so that you could be united with Him for all eternity. Today, you need to give God your heart to be filled with His Spirit, overflow with His love and His life, and that can begin today. Today, if you know the Lord, but you've gone distant and cold, begin to lean in and worship to cultivate that heart of passion for the groom, for the Savior of your soul. Today, my prayer is that you begin to lean in to rediscover the great God of ours, the Savior of our souls, the lover of our souls, the groom who gave his life for the the bride. That the more we discover about his love, the more awe and wonder we'll experience when we worship That the closer we get to his heart, the more of our hearts we give to him, the more of his heart we'll get to experience. The more we seek his spirit, the more we're filled with his life and power. The more we yearn for his glory, the more a light we'll have to burn as we wait on the Lord that is coming. My invitation to you today is to encounter His heart for you. To sense His passionate love for you as you become overwhelmed in His presence. My prayer is that as we continue to worship the Lord, that the hope of eternity would fall upon you. As we continue to sing and to worship my prayer is that you would extend your heart that you'd reach out with your soul that whatever you need to do to extend your hands to the Lord your heart to the Lord that you would cry out in desperation and ask God to fill you with his love that you'd ask God to let his love wash over you his presence to fill you to rekindle the fire of passion in your heart again God, I pray for us today. God, I pray that the hope of glory would descend as worship arises. God, that your presence would fall. That you'd fill us afresh. That you'd break off the apathy and the coldness. God, you said that the things we want to see will only happen when your people fall in love with you again. I pray, God, that we would fall head over heels afresh today. God let your tangible love, your tangible presence fall upon us today. And I just pray this in Jesus name. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you, and God bless.